Hey everybody, welcome to the PDX Beat Podcast, the culture show that keeps a finger on the pulse of all things Portland. I'm your host, Amado Lumba, and for this week's Beat, I had the pleasure of chatting with author and Portland historian J.D. Chandler. We spoke about his writings, which lean toward our fair city's criminal past, his passion for local history, and toward the end of the episode, J.D. enlightened me with a short list of local street names and areas that I'm sure many Portlanders would be surprised to learn that they're continuing to pronounce incorrectly. (laughs) But before we continue, please do note that this episode contains strong language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. J.D. is among the rarest groups of people one would bump into here in Portland. He's a native Oregonian. Born in Eugene, Oregon, J.D.'s family moved to Portland in the early 60s when he was just a toddler. And through bouts of wanderlust and obtaining higher education in Olympia, Washington, he's actually called the City of Roses home for over four decades. Is it true that if you've lived here in Portland as somebody who just moved here to town, for seven years, at least seven years, you're considered a native? <laughs> uh, I don't know what the magic number is. But I do know that Oregon is Oregon is a place that people come to. Um, you know, native Oregonians always get fucked over. <laughs> How so? Explain that a bit. Um, well, the, the first natives, most of them died. Um, by the time the uh, white settlers started coming to the Willamette Valley, 90% of the indigenous people in the valley had died from diseases. Um, so they got fucked over pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. So uh, now Oregonians, native Oregonians, are the real minority in the state, uh, at least in Portland. You know, you get outside of Portland, things might be a little bit different. Uh, some towns people are born and die in, and no, just like anywhere else. They never go anywhere else. But Portland is a place where people come from other places and become Oregonians. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the magic number is. Seven years works. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Some people, it doesn't take that long. Right. For some people, maybe seven years is too long. <laughs> <laughs> and for some people, seven years is far too long. <laughs> J.D. used to call himself a criminal historian. Because I liked the ambiguity of that. You don't know if you know who the criminal is there. It's like a criminal attorney, right? Um, but more and more, I'm, I'm doing other things than crime. And so the, the way I use local historian is I'm focused on a very close locality. And to me, it's Portland. I'm very interested in the history of Portland, almost to the exclusion of everything else. Um, you know, I kind of like to know what's going on in the rest of the world and how Portland fits into that. But I'm much more interested in what's happening in Portland than any other uh, history. Let's talk a little bit about the the blogs that you that you okay. write. Um, I've got uh, Slab Town Chronicle. That's my first blog. Okay. I, you know, I started that in 2004, and that grew out of a much bigger project. Um, in 1991, a close friend of mine was murdered, and I've always had an interest in murder, but that really kind of kickstarted it. I went to the um, the trial of his killer and uh, was very involved in that whole process, and I got to know people in in the killer's family and uh, I got to know people in my friend's family that I hadn't met. They came from out of state to be there for him. And so it was a a very important thing for me. And so it really focused my interest in murder. Uh, When I moved back to Portland in 1996 after graduating at at Evergreen, 
um, I had an experience at a downtown hotel uh, that left me really wondering what had happened there. Um, so I started spending my Sundays in uh, the central library reading the old newspapers on microfilm, trying to figure out what had happened at that hotel. I eventually found out, and I did the blog post, Don't Look Too Close, which is on Slaptown. Um, so in 1996, I started doing this research, and it grew into a project that's called the Slabtown Chronology, uh, which is just a chronological listing of all of the murders that have happened in and around Portland. And it goes back to 1850s. Um, I don't have all of them because I'm still discovering new ones. I'm doing a lot of research on my new book right now, and every once in a while I turn up a new murder that I hadn't heard of. <laughs> uh, so I'm adding to the list all sure. the time. I'm probably about 2,700 murders. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but that's the big project. And that's, that's bare bones. That's chronology. It's uh, the date, the name of the victim, the address if I know it, the name of the killer if I know it, and you know some real bare details of the crime. That's what that project is. But that's kind of an outline almost. And so I started expanding on it and writing Slabtown Chronicle mm -hmm. in 2004. And, you know, some of that, that was kind of inspired by something that happened in 2004, a murder of a young girl up in Vancouver. Um, and I found uh, some of her postings online. Uh, so I was able to learn a, learn some things about her from her online presence and then write from that point of view because it, my writing about murder is all very victim-oriented. I'm really interested in murder victims. Uh, so in 2004, I started doing the Slabtown Chronicle and just writing short pieces on murders that have happened in Portland. And it's, I don't even know, 60 or 70 postings there now. So it's uh, pretty extensive. Uh, History Press contacted me uh, after seeing that blog, and that's where my book, Murder and Mayhem in Portland, came from. They asked me to write a book in their series. Um, and it was a natural. I had most of the material already uh, researched. and pretty. It was the history stuff that... Um, took new research for me, and I got some of it wrong in Murder and Mayhem, because uh, I was focused more on the murder than on the history. And that's where hidden history came from, um, is correcting some of my mistakes <laughs> and telling the stories that didn't fit into Murder and Mayhem. Sure. Um, you know, because looking at history in terms of murder, I think, is a, is a really interesting study, but it's limited. You, don't, you, you can't really tell every story. If somebody didn't, kill, didn't get killed, it doesn't really fit. So hidden history is my non-murder-related history of Portland. And that's where my next blog came from, uh, is Weird Portland. Um, I started sharing some of those stories that became hidden history there, and I continue that and because I, I really like the odd stories of Portland history. When I met with J.D. several weeks ago, he had just come from a dedication event at the historic Lone Fir Cemetery. This is, this is a very fun project. Um, first of all, I found out that hidden history is being used uh, by a, a history teacher at Madison High School to teach a local history class. Nice. I was very proud of that. Uh, he invited me to come in and speak to the class. So I went in and um, talked to the class about history and what history is, and I had a really good time. The kids really were engaged. They really seemed to like what I had to say really seemed to be interested in what I do, and they asked me to take them on a field trip. And so I thought, well, sure, Lone Fir Cemetery is close to my house. I know it pretty well. There's some great stories in there. I'll take you guys on a trip to Lone Fir. So while we were building up to this um, 
field trip, I was doing some research with a group that I work with called Oregon Black Pioneers. And uh, we have a, a project that we've been working on there of collecting uh, historic sites in Oregon that are focused on African-American history. So we've identified houses, uh, buildings of all kinds, and graves. And my specialty is the graves. When we get a lead on an uh, African-American who's buried somewhere in Oregon, my job is to uh, figure out who that person was mm -hmm. and anything that we can find about their life. Um, so I know, I like to say, I know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally do. Uh, but while we but between the time that I addressed the class at Madison High School and the time I took them on the field trip to Lone Fur, I got a, got a lead on this uh, guy, um, Gus Waterford. Portland's first black firefighter and he was buried in Lone Fur without a gravestone. I talked with the Oregon Black Pioneers about it and they agreed that he should have a gravestone but they didn't really feel as an organization that they were in a position to lead that and I said okay well let me see what I can do and um, so I wrote my blog post on Weird Portland called No Headstone on My Grave and just told who Gus Waterford was uh, what the situation was. He's buried out there next to his mother. His mother's got a nice stone. He's got nothing. He's just not even, nobody even remembered this man. Um, completely forgotten character from Portland history. Um, so then I took the kids for a, a walk out at Lone Fur. And I uh, took them to Sam Simpson's grave. Now, Sam Simpson, you might know, is the poet who wrote Beautiful Willamette, which was like our national anthem in the 1870s. It was the poem. The kids memorized it and could recite it in school, and it's just a poem about the Willamette River and how important it is to us here in Portland. Um, he's buried in Lone Fur, and uh, he had been in kind of a same situation. He had a stone, I believe, but it was a very small stone, and he had been kind of forgotten in history. Uh, it happens a lot more often than we think. People just aren't really remembered. Um, but a group of people realized this is Sam Simpson's grave, this is who Sam Simpson was. They raised money and they bought him a beautiful headstone that quotes from his poem and there's even a little bench there. So it's a really nice grave now that, that commemorates an important person. So I took the kids there and I showed them Sam Simpson's grave and they knew who he was because I'd given them some uh, um, reading in advance so they would know some of the stories uh, and be interested in some of them. So they knew who Sam Simpson was and I showed them the grave and I showed them that they had uh, raised money and they got got a new stone for it to commemorate nice. who he was. Nice. Then I walked them over to where the Waterford family is buried and I showed them Martha Waterford's grave. That's uh, Gus Waterford's mother. And I said, Gus is buried right here and it's just this empty piece of grass. And I challenged them to put a stone on his grave. And so some of the kids uh, took up the challenge. And for their end of year project, they decided to get a stone on Gus Waterford's grave. And this last Friday, uh, we dedicated the new stone. Uh, they got they started working with the uh, fire department and the uh, retired firefighters organization, retired firefighters and widows, and they raised the money and they got a beautiful stone for him very, very quickly. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was my big triumph, and it all came out of the work that I've been doing. Like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thepdxbeat. Find us on Twitter as at thepdxbeat. Email us at thepdxbeat at gmail.com 
and check out our website at www.thepdxbeat.com. Going back to your, your hidden history of Portland, uh, Oregon book. So that's, um, that was released in 2013, 2013. Yes. And, um, and it's available for purchase on Amazon, I believe. It's on Amazon. It's at Powell's Bookstore. Uh, it's on uh, anywhere you can buy books. Um, and here in Portland, you can find it in a lot of places. Oregon Historical Society. Um, there's gift shops, uh, different uh, historical societies around town. Right. It's, it's a pretty popular book. Uh, I've been really surprised at how much it's taken off. Right on. And it. Uh, I thought I read I read one of the reviews that, uh, that you didn't focus on the mandatory history stuff of or like the Shanghai tunnels and stuff but what do you think people would be surprised the most to read out of your book oh that's interesting I, I really focus on uh, stories that haven't been told well in our history uh, so Native American history and women's history African American history Asian American history uh, there's two stories that I found very surprising myself uh, when I discovered them, and I think that people will be surprised. One was that Susan B. Anthony came to Oregon three separate times during her career, and she worked very closely with our uh, local suffrage leader, Abigail Scott Dunaway. That was a real eye-opener to me to see how um, how important Oregon was to the East Coast feminists. Uh, Susan B. Anthony was a major national leader, and she's actually spent a lot of time in Oregon. Um, one of the great stories, and it's in Hidden History, is how she and Abigail Scott Dunaway toured the, toured the state in 1871 in stagecoaches, um, trying to drum up support for a women's suffrage amendment. They did. They, got it, they, they actually voted on women's suffrage in 1871. It didn't pass. Um, but it, it was really a great story of how these two women traveled the state talking about women's, vote, women's rights. Uh, the other one that I always I found very surprising and that most people find surprising and has really generated a lot of interest in the book is the story of uh, Jack Yoshihara, uh, who was uh, he was a Japanese American. Um, he had the he had a just a little odd quirk of fate at the time that he was born. Um, his mother his mother when she was pregnant returned to Japan because her mother was ill, and so he was born in Japan, which put him in a specific status that was not so good to be in uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, by the time he came of age. Um, so he came back to Portland at like two or three months old, uh, but it made him a Japanese national, mm-hmm. um, which meant in Oregon that he really had no rights at all. Um, he was not allowed to own property. He was not allowed uh, to do a lot of different things. But he graduated from Benson High School in 1939 on the football team. Um, and that was that was another little kind of surprising thing was how important sports were for this generation of uh, Isai, the, the Japanese Americans who were born here, uh, because all of them were uh, baseball players and football players or basketball. There was a uh, they were called the Portland Midgets, the <laughs> Japanese American basketball team that was really popular here in town in the '30s. Uh, but these young Japanese guys were really into sports. And Jack was a really good football player. Uh, this Benson line uh, went; they went in a unit to Oregon State College in Corvallis, and they made uh, the uh, Beavers. <laughs> I, I always forget who's who. <clears throat> I'm not a sports fan, but they made the Beavers a great team uh, in. Uh, 
1940, which was the first year that he played for uh, Oregon State, uh, they won their division and they ended up in the Rose Bowl for the cool. very first time. Um, then Pearl Harbor got bombed on December 7th. Right. And suddenly, Jack Yoshihara, they took his camera away from him. <laughs> for one thing, Japanese uh, were not allowed to own cameras. Uh, that was spy, spy equipment. Wow. Uh, they were not allowed to ride on public transportation. They were not allowed to take more than $100 out of their banks. Uh, they were not allowed to be out after a certain time at night. They couldn't travel more than 30 miles from their home. They're just amazing restrictions. And this was, uh, it ended up a few months later, they just rounded them all up and shipped them off to camps in Idaho and uh, different places. But uh, before that happened, it was like their lives were really restricted. Um, and it affected the Japanese Americans, although they weren't really subject to a lot of this because they were American citizens, they still got treated this way. Yeah. And Jack, being born in Japan, had no rights at all. Um, but he was not allowed to travel, so that meant he couldn't play in the Rose Bowl game. It, and I tell the story of how it uh, derailed his career, and and uh, he ended up he ended up going to college after the war. He was injured in a... It's a long story. I won't tell it now. Read the <laughs> well, book. Yeah, we can read it in the book for sure. <laughs> but Jack Yoshihara's whole life was really changed by not being allowed to play in the Rose Bowl game. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2004, when he was about 82 years old, he got an um, honorary degree from Oregon State University. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, yeah, a little <laughs> bit late. <laughs> About uh, 60-some years late. Right. Uh, but he did get it. And they actually, he did have a Rose Bowl jacket. Um, they gave him a Rose Bowl jacket, and I think uh, later on they awarded him a ring. Uh, but the, his teammates got him a jacket right away. They were going <laughs> to smuggle him in their luggage. <laughs> they didn't play the Rose Bowl in Pasadena that year because uh, it was too close to the coast, and we were afraid the Japanese were going to take California at any minute. There was a lot of, lot of hysteria at the beginning of the war. Uh, you know, Pearl Harbor was a pretty provocative move. Sure. Uh, so they played the Rose Bowl in, um, at Duke University that year, so back in North Carolina. And so his teammates were going to smuggle him in their luggage and take him back there. <laughs> at the last minute, he decided not to. <laughs> that he would decision. Have, he would have really been in trouble then. He yeah. probably would have gone to jail. <laughs> cool. But um, they did get him a jacket. So he had a Rose Bowl jacket. Uh, but it took a long time for this man to get what he deserved. Yeah. That. And, and um, can you imagine how disappointing, you know, you're with your teammates, you make the Rose Bowl for the very first time with your teammates, and then you don't get to go. Yeah. No, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, when I, when I read his story, I thought, this is the perfect example of what the internment did to Japanese Americans. Uh, because it completely disrupted their lives. Uh, left them, most of them, when they returned uh, from the camps, they really had nothing. Yeah, they couldn't really restart. No, they had, well, they, they did restart, but they restarted from zero. Oh. Um, you know, all the, proper that the property that they'd owned, all the savings that they'd had were gone, and they were impoverished. They did manage to restart. Um, sure. You know, they're resilient people, and they, yeah. they came back and built themselves back up. But uh, it was really harsh what happened to them. And I think it's quite surprising. And, and I think it's really fun to have a person who tells us that story. Yeah. Uh, and that's what I really try to do with Hidden History, is tell the personal stories that illustrate. I tell you what, the, and I, I wrote it down here, the Portland Midgets uh-huh. is still a better name than the Portland Pickles, which is... <laughs> 
That's true. Our new Portland, te- Portland baseball team. But speaking of names, um, I know you and I were talking the other day, and I found out that I've been mispronouncing quite a few <laughs> Portland-specific names. Uh, it's and not common, especially the ones that I thought were the correct ones. Okay. So uh, can we can we talk about that real yeah, quick? Yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to. <laughs> Um, and let's start with the name of the state. What's what's the name of the state? Oregon. Oregon. Good. You've learned that one. And that this is one that newcomers learn pretty fast. Uh, it's pretty simple. Now, the basic rule of thumb on, pro- on pronouncing Oregon place names is pronounce it as if you're illiterate. <laughs> Works almost every time. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, but Oregon is the word that separates Oregonians from non-Oregonians. Okay. Just right off the bat. If you say Oregon or Oregon or any variation on it, we know you're not from here. <laughs> I see those license plates actually that say Oregon. Gun. <laughs> yeah, right. actually, it pisses me off every time I see that. Yeah, that pisses me <laughs> off too. <laughs> I think that's what those are for. <laughs> good. So that's a good barometer. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Oh, and if you're interested, I can give you a little background on what the name means. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, there are all kinds of stories, and nobody really knows where this name comes from. But the myth that I like the best is that it's from a native word called Warrigan, which means beautiful water. It seems to me that all of these Native American names mean beautiful water in some <laughs> way. So who knows what this word really meant? But it was first used for, for an imaginary river, the River of the West, that nobody knew was here, which turned out pretty much to be the Columbia. Oh, okay. And cool. then, then it kind of came to mean the whole region. Okay. Next word. And this is, this is the killer word. What's the name of the river that runs through town? Um, Willamette. Willamette. Good. You're very good at that. Uh, <laughs> that has been our most controversial word uh, ever. Uh, in fact, we have been arguing about how to pronounce this word since the 1850s. Okay. And one <laughs> pronunciation won. It's Willamette. Right. Damn it. <laughs> That's how you remember it. Willamette. Willamette, damn it. Damn it. All right. <laughs> uh, but the original word was probably pronounced something like Wallamut. Mm. And it, um, now, it's a, it's a Kalapuyan word. And the Kalapuyans were the native people who lived along the Willamette River, starting about Willamette Falls, going south, and then down the branches of different rivers there. Um, and they didn't give names to a river. They would give descriptions to parts of rivers. Uh, you know, you would call the river by what it looked like at this place. Hmm. Um, so it didn't have just one name for the whole river. That's not how they thought of the river. Um, but the word Wallamute meant freely flowing. And the idea was that it probably is what they called Willamette Falls. They might have called the river from Willamette Falls to the Columbia. Hmm. Uh, because it does flow pretty freely sure. from there. Um, but there was a huge argument uh, between a couple of our pioneer assholes. <laughs> Judge Dede and uh, William Strong argued about whether it was Wallamette or Willamette, uh, Willamette, Wallamute. There were all these different ways to say it. Um, and S- Strong had this idea that it was more romantic if it looked like it was French. Okay. <laughs> he made up a really stupid story about the three little French boys who lived on the river, and one of them was named Guillaume, and they named the river after him. Uh-huh. It's all bullshit, but the name stuck. 
Uh, so it's Willamette. Um, the ones that I hear now all the time are Willamette. Right. Everybody wants to say Willamette. Willamette is in Illinois. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a, <laughs> it's a Midwest type of thing. Exactly. Very regional. Exactly. And it's another, another way to tell whether they're from Portland or not. Exactly. <laughs> and this is even more, because Oregon, people pick up on Oregon real quick. Right. Willamette, not so quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's plenty of other... Uh, odd names in Portland. This is another one people pick up pretty easily. Um, do you know in the Northwest Portland, the Alphabet Streets? Yes. What's the C Street called? So this one I learned a long time ago, but it's it's pronounced it's Cooch. Cooch. Uh, a lot. Of, it looks like couch, right? And a lot of people say couch. Most people learn pretty quick. It's named after Captain John Cooch, who used to live there, and uh, his name is pronounced Cooch. It's pretty easy to, to get that one, and not too many people get it wrong. But his son-in-law, uh, his name is almost always pronounced wrong, and a lot of people who know how, know how it should be pronounced have almost given up on correcting people. <laughs> and uh, it's Glisten, uh, and it's the G Street in the Alphabet District. Everybody calls it Gleason. I even sometimes call it Gleason, uh, because if you say Gleason, people don't even know what you're talking about right. half the time. And uh, so a lot of us have even given up on correcting this one. <laughs> Phonetically, it sounds correct, Gleason. Right. Uh, and in fact, when I first saw that, you know, when I moved here quite a, quite a while back, uh, I was pronouncing it as Glisten until somebody corrected, corrected me. <laughs> that's, that's to the incorrect way. <laughs> and that, that definitely happens. In fact, uh, do you ever read the Dr. No column in Willamette Week? No. Um, it's the one part of Willamette Week that I find pretty entertaining. <laughs> um, but he, in his little rant about uh, Glisten Street, he says exactly that. He says it should be pronounced Gleason. Uh, Glisten is the tourist way to say it. Oh. But that's wrong. Listen, is the real way to say it. So there's, I mean, should we stage a protest somehow? Like a Pioneer Courthouse Square with placards? Uh, yeah, okay. I'll watch it on TV. Right on. <laughs> I've kind of given up on trying to correct that one. Please say, please say glisten. We'll all appreciate it. We could just change the, the way it's spelled. I mean, gosh, gosh knows, we, we change street names here all the time. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I have never really understood why Rodney Glisson had a, name, had a street named after him. <laughs> um, he was a doctor. He was fairly prominent. He was married to Captain Cooch's daughter, and those are his qualifications to be, you know, have a street named after him. We could change that name. I would be happy with that. Those were the times. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, and then there is uh, an interesting word. This is the part of town that is just to the north of the river. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, if you look at the map, there's northwest and southwest Portland. Right. Then you cross the river and you have northeast and southeast. Yep. And then up on the peninsula, you have north. Yes. And right down at the bottom of that peninsula is a settlement that was called Albina. And almost everybody pronounces it Albina. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. <laughs> I don't. I really don't know why. I guess it's because we pronounce the word albino that mm -hmm. way. Um, that's probably not the right pronunciation of albino either. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but I looked this one up. Uh, this settlement, this was originally, it was a separate town. Right. Uh, it was uh, first platted in 1872, incorporated in 1887, and then merged into Portland in 1891 in the Great Merger when um, Albina... East Portland and Portland merged together into the city of Greater Portland, right? Which we would recognize today. Um, but it was named uh, Albina was named after Mrs. Albina Page, 
she was the wife of one of the town developers. And um, if her, if you look up the dictionary, Wikipedia, anywhere, you look up the female name, Albina, and how to pronounce it, it's pronounced Albina. It comes from the Latin albinus, which also albina comes, albino comes from. Mm-hmm. So probably that one should be called albi- albino as well. Right. If you say that, no one will know what you're talking Nobody about. Nobody will know. <laughs> and again, albina, uh, phonetically, and the way it's spelled, it should be pronounced albina. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But, uh, and per- per- the pervasive misuse and mispronunciation is shocking. <laughs> it is. And it, I, it's actually, I don't mind this one so much. <laughs> albina sounds okay to me. And the fact that I pronounce it albina instantly makes people recognize that I know Portland history. There we go. Yeah, so can. it works. Or could have the inverse. Like, this guy just moved into town or something? Why is, why is he pronouncing it cor- incorrectly? <laughs> okay. People who know Portland history instantly okay, recognize go. it. <laughs> One more I'd like to talk about, and this is a lake that no longer exists. Okay. Uh, it's up in uh, up by your neighborhood, actually, okay. uh, northwest Portland. Um, it's where we had the 1905 Lewis and Clark expedition, exposition, uh, and it's all been filled in now. It's the uh, Giles Lake Industrial District. Now. Okay, uh, but everyone pronounces this as Guilds Lake. And it kind of looks like Guild because the word is G-U-I-L-D. Okay. Uh, so it, it looks like Guild, uh, but it is named after Peter and Elizabeth uh, Guild, uh, who were the original settlers there. And uh, I have heard some different pronunciations of this. I met an old cop who, who pronounced it Geeds Lake. I think he might have been hard of hearing. <laughs> <laughs> but for a long time, I used his pronunciation. I figured he worked there. He knew how to say sure. it. Uh, so I called it Geeds Lake until I met uh, a woman who actually grew up in the Giles Lake housing project there, and she informed me that it was definitely Giled. Uh, and so I've been saying it correctly since then. Um, now, is that where now it's maybe like Vaughn area? Yes. Yon uh, Street. Vaughn yeah. Street, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I thought I saw, and again, I, I cannot remember. Oh, I know where it was. It was at Joe Cellar Cap Diner. Mm. There was a picture there, and yeah, there was a lake. Yeah. Um, in, in that space, and I couldn't figure out where the lake went. <laughs> yeah, it's gone. It was all. It was about half filled in in 1904 uh, to build the site the of the exposition. No, the, oh, the exposition okay. center because uh, we had the Lewis and Clark exposition there. Got it. Uh, there was still a lake because there were some boats and things on it. But then uh, I don't know exactly when. Sometime between then and the 40s, it was completely filled in, and then that was a public housing project. Uh, it was uh, the second largest in the area after Vanport, uh, but it was a pretty huge housing um, group. It was one of the few places in town that black people were allowed to live. Um, and so there was a pretty good-sized black population at Giles Lake. Uh, but, yeah, it's gone. The other lake that's completely gone is Cooch Lake, uh, which is was where uh, Union Station is now. Okay. Um, but that was, that was considered to be the best duck hunting in the region uh, up until 1870s or so. Right on. Well, I appreciate you uh, educating us. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to. <laughs> on the uh, proper pronunciation. And, yes, you're right. I mean, I think the proper pronunciation of those places and streets um, pretty much uh, got lost in history at this point. A lot of them, yes. Um, and there's uh, – it'd be hard – we'd be hard-pressed to convince a bunch of Portlanders to pronounce it correctly at this time. Yeah, and, and it's <laughs> it's a losing battle. It's definitely a losing battle. So I just say them the way that I know they should be said and let people say them the way they want to. You pronounce it correctly in your head. Yes. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much, JD, for that uh, education, and thanks again for joining me. Glad um, to. Hope to, uh, to have you on the show again in the future. I would be glad to. JD has several blogs that keep Portland's history, both the criminal and the strange, alive and kicking. He's also working on his next book. You will find links to his blogs and other writings, as well as to his podcast called Murder by Experts, on the show notes for this episode. And JD will continue to pepper us with Portland history on future episodes. And that's our show this week, folks. Music provided by local musician Sweet Nothing. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or wherever you download quality podcasts. This has been a presentation of the PDX Beat. I'm Amado Lumba. Thanks for tuning in.